Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Despite coming under repeated criticism from our allies over our military spending, the federal government is asking the Department of National Defense to cut roughly a billion dollars from its budget. Now, the defense minister says it's not a budget cut. Critics argue that's exactly what it is. We look into who's right, what impact it could have on our military and on Canada's reputation internationally. Global News' Tracy Tong is hosting a new show called Crime Beat Most Wanted. And ahead of its premiere on Saturday evening, she joins me to talk about how the show tracks some of Canada's most wanted criminals and digs into the crimes themselves, the victims, the scars they've left on the families and the communities, and how it calls on us to provide information to help police track those suspects down. But first, ahead of the National Day of Truth and Reconciliation, we speak with Inuk singer Ilesipi about her fourth and latest album called Inuktitut. She covers songs that shaped her childhood growing up in Salouit in northern Quebec. Everything from Blondie to Metallica, The Stones and Cyndi Lauper. She sings all of them in Inuktitut and behind each song, a story that she shares with us. And this year's record wildfire season is another stark reminder that Indigenous communities across Canada are disproportionately impacted by wildfires that have been for years now. Dr. Nicole Redfers joins me to talk about the impact and how Indigenous knowledge could help better mitigate fire risks in the future. Uh, Earlier this week, BC announced that 2023 had already been the most expensive and destructive fire season on record in the province. Uh, A total of 2,217 fires this year, 25,000 square kilometers of trees, bush and grassland burned. And that, of course, is a story that's been repeated elsewhere across this country this year. Uh, Dry conditions, warmer than usual temperatures have helped fuel the worst fire season, uh, wildfire season on record for Canada with more than 175,000 square kilometers burned. Imagine that, 43 million acres, if you prefer that measurement. That's nearly a 650% increase over the 10-year average for this country. Tens of thousands of people have been forced out of their homes. Six firefighters, wildland firefighters, have lost their lives. And of course, fires are still burning. Now, historically, and this year is no different, Indigenous communities have been disproportionately impacted by wildfires. Uh, A reminder of that from this year, earlier this year, here is Daryl Sowen of the Little Red River Cree Nations Emergency Management Team. You may remember back in May, fire destroyed dozens of structures and forced thousands of people from their home home in the community of Fox Lake, that's about 900 kilometres north of Edmonton. With no road into the community, they had to flee by barge across a lake. The fire moved yesterday and the winds picked up and there were 40 kilometer hour plus winds and moved the fire and that's when we started losing homes and stuff. It is a bit of a giant event. It even complicates things for Fox Lake that they don't have a road in, you know, and this is a bit of a wake-up call to the government and stuff that they really need a, a bridge or something in there to get people out. Yeah, and although Indigenous people are roughly 5% of the country's population, Indigenous communities make up 42% of wildfire evacuations in the past decade. And it's not just the evacuations, but also the health impacts of the smoke, the destruction of traditional lands and structures. And part of the problem is that Indigenous people have not been able to manage the flammable materials near their local land. Traditional fire stewardship practices are not just ignored, they've often been criminalized. So would changing that be part of the solution to better mitigate the wildfire risk in the future, something that doesn't just help Indigenous communities, but would help all of us. Dr. Nicole Redvers is an associate professor at the Schulich School of Medicine and Dentistry and research chair and director of Indigenous Planetary Health at Western University. She's a member of the Dininukwe First Nation in the North, Northwest Territories, and she joins me now. Dr. Redvers, thank you so much. Thank you. Happy to be here. 
Tell me a bit about Indigenous planetary health, because it sounds like such a fascinating uh, uh, chair to have, uh, at the research chair to have in a university setting these days. Yeah, it's uh, very unique uh, in in the context globally, actually. There's been uh, a director of planetary health at University of Ottawa for a few years, but this is the first Indigenous planetary health uh, directorship that's been a part of a medical school. And and really the key piece is it, is that we're having a, a greater understanding within the Western worldview that uh, our health as humans is fundamentally dependent on the health of our environments. And I think we've seen that very clear this season with the wildfires and all all of the climate events that have been occurring that um, we can't uh, ignore uh, the effects that are happening on the planet and, and how it impacts us as individuals, families and communities. And we had a, a, a we've had a yet another reminder of that this summer. I know that uh, this year's wildfire season, a record wildfire season, has hit very close to home for many First Nations, uh, Métis and Inuit communities. Uh, we've talked in the past about how it disproportionately impacts those communities, but this year has felt, I mean, we've just seen the the the, the visible, the visual uh, impact of it with, with evacuations and so on, specifically um, in the Northwest Territories as well, where, where you call home or called home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Still call home. It's uh, It was a very, very challenging summer. And, and in fact, uh, the, the community in the First Nation where my father works, the Catlodeche First Nation, they've had three evacuations within a period of about 15 months. Last spring was uh, unprecedented flooding. Uh, this spring was wildfires. And then uh, just in August was the second wildfire of, of the season. Unfortunately, with uh, a lot of uh, buildings lost, uh, traditional landscapes, berry bushes, you know, uh, trap lines, homelands, the rest of it, and 68% of the entire Northwest Territories population was evacuated uh, during these events. And and what was so striking this summer, uh, comparatively to to other areas, and I, I had the benefit of being able to go home for for a while this year, was just walking around on the ground. And the the absolute dryness, I've I've never seen it that bad before, where the ground is literally just crunching and, and falling into pieces around you, uh, which was part of the problem with the fires this year. They The ground was so dry that the fire was burning about two to three feet below the ground. Uh, which created a lot of uh, problems for trying to put fires out because uh, you can put it out above the above the soil, but if it's burning underneath, it requires big heavy machinery to turn dirt over and, and get communities safe. So really an unprecedented uh, time this summer and experience for a lot of uh, community members up north. Yeah, and, and, and I know that the red flags have been waved for quite a while because people who know this land know that, uh, that it's, there's an alarm bell going off. Mm-hmm, absolutely. There's been alarm bells going off for decades. I think a lot of our northern Indigenous leaders have been calling for action around climate change for, for years. Uh, you know, thinking of uh, Denis Ulene elder, uh, Francois Paulette, uh, also Satu Dene elder, Bessa Blondin, and a number of others who have been witnessing the changes in our landscapes uh, with the permafrost melt, uh, many of the other impacts and seasonal availability of our animals and plants, and, and really for the first time, really, in this this last year, this unprecedented wildfire, really starting to feel like people are understanding and, and starting to get the picture of, of what they've been talking about is really coming to fruition. You've looked into the disproportionate impact that wildfires have on, on Indigenous communities, and it is widespread. I mean, you talked about the physical impact that it has on the landscape, but it has pretty pretty serious health impact as well on a lot of these communities who find themselves right on the front lines of of the fires, the smoke, and also the displacement as well has a whole other category of, of impact. 
Mm-hmm. One of the, you know, the striking things, I think, and this is particularly amplified in the northern areas of all of our provinces and also, you know, the Northwest Territories and, and Yukon and even increasingly in Nunavut, is that the homes in these areas are are built for cold. They are built for cold. And as we see increasing temperatures occurring within these areas, uh, you know, being up home in the summer as well, you know, most of these homes don't have air condition or air, air filtration systems. So when we have the unprecedented wildfire effects like we did this year, a lot of families and individuals are having to choose between keeping the windows closed and, and literally baking inside of incredibly hot homes or opening the windows and being exposed to extremely unhealthy air quality with really nowhere to go and we lack a lot of infrastructure in many of our first nation but also our northern communities and ensuring we have at least one safe space where people can go to to escape and to rest uh nicole part of this is solutions right we're looking now i think uh you know it's highly possible the next year's fire season will be a quiet one and people will stop talking and we'll move on a little bit but it feels like this summer has been a real wake-up call And in terms of knowledge sharing, and this is part of what you do with Indigenous Planetary Health, I'm sure, is is this idea of sharing best practices, sharing knowledge. And why wouldn't you want to hear from those who've been closest to this for millennia about how to fix this? And sometimes it feels like we've kind of closed our ears to use or turned off our ears to some of that knowledge. Mm-hmm. You know, it's an important co- concept of consideration because it's not only a matter of, of shutting our ears, so to speak, but there were direct policies in place as a result of colonization that resulted in a lot of our traditional fire practices, for example, becoming illegal in this country. Uh, not all communities have fire uh practices, but many do. Um, And there's been a lot of evidence to show that the suppression of our traditional fire practices, like cultural burns, for example, which were uh, done uh, across landscapes, not only in Canada and the United States, but the suppression of those cultural burns have actually led to increasing risk of wildfires. So, you know, yes, we have not listened, but we've also had laws in place that have prevented uh, traditional knowledge from being applied in, in many of our areas across this country. And then the second piece to that is that there's a long standing um, amount of stewardship practices that have been embodied in many communities across this country that have been put uh, secondary to some of the resource interests as well. So, for example, the forest industry has had a long history of spraying glycophosphate around our forests for the purposes of killing deciduous trees to allow more uh, space and room for coniferous trees to grow. Uh, The problem is, is those deciduous trees act as natural fire breaks um, so that when big wildfires come we actually have uh, stands of trees that are able to act as buffers so to speak but we've removed a lot of those uh, for the purposes of forestry and resource benefit. There must be a sense of frustration in those communities too when these fires burn so big and so hot uh, that uh, that there's I mean not to say I told you so but in some senses they must people must look at this and think I told you so. Mm. Yeah, you know, it's always amazing when I when I speak to elders, because uh, I don't think I've ever heard a, a told you so kind right. of attitude from them. They've, they've been very humble and, and more so a, a sadness, but also, you know, um, definitely people upset of, of not being able to be listened to. We have so many land defenders and, and people that are trying to stand up for our environment on a regular basis that really their voices uh, not only have not been heard, but they've been arrested. They've been, you know, there's so many complications 
limitations and complexities around this. But but always elders coming to this with, you know, an open heart and open arms and, and really wanting to move forward in this country in a good way to ensure the continued protection of our environment, not only for Indigenous peoples, but for all, you know, the smoke has no boundaries. And when Indigenous peoples are standing up for the environment, they're not, they're not just doing it for themselves. It's for the trees, it's for the animals, and ultimately for all human beings uh, and all the other ecosystem uh, parameters on Earth. It feels like a very important topic to be looking at as we approach National Truth and Reconciliation Day, this idea of, of the land, because this year we've seen an angry land, um, uh, you know, an, an angry Mother Nature, so to speak. And it feels like this is one of those topics that isn't often talked about within the realm of truth and reconciliation. We talk a lot about the past, but but this feels like a really important one for the future. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, the premise of part of the premise, at least from my perspective of reconciliation is, is, you know, first and foremost, reconciliation with within ourselves. And if we see ourselves as a part of nature, and our First Nation, Indigenous, uh, you know, Métis, Inuit communities have very um, um, fundamental understandings of us being a part of nature. And I often give the example that we're 60% water. So, you know, we are the living rivers and lakes around us. We are literally the lakes and rivers that we drink from walking around so if the water's not healthy we are not healthy the land's not healthy we're not healthy so embodying the idea that we are a part of nature automatically reconciliation becomes individual to ourselves but reconciling with nature first and foremost before we can really you know come together in relationship on a broader society level and that's often an underappreciated component when it comes to conversations that have happened um, over you know a, a very complex and difficult history for many of us Yes. What would you like to tell listeners then uh, about tomorrow? What would you like people to be thinking about as as we mark that day? Well, one one of the things that comes up, I think, often, and you know, unfortunately, there's been a, a increased amount of uh, denialism that has occurred around this topic area. And I always just, you know, think from my personal experiences as as a person, as a people, and you know, I know my lived experience, and I've know I know my history, where I've been, where I've lived, what I've seen, and I respect what others have lived and seen as well too. And I think when we come to the nature of tomorrow, it's being able to honor other people's stories and understand that when people speak these deep truths, they're coming from a deep place, not only of trauma, but also of of love for their communities and and a need to move forward positively. So, you know, it's up to all Canadians, in my mind, to really reflect on the truths of their own stories, but allow others' truths to speak through so that we can come to a place where we are able to be who we are as peoples. We are able to do our, you know, do our culture, speak our languages, be who we are as the, the the strong and resilient people, but at the same time, allowing those space for us to share the hurts, the sorrows, the anger, the frustrations that have occurred over over this uh, complex history. So tomorrow I, I, I come to the day thinking about my mom, who's a residential school survivor, my grandmother, and many of my other family members, and the legacies of what has occurred. And, and being able to sit with that story is, is not easy. Um, reach out to your Indigenous friends, you know, send them an orange heart, send them a hug, um, be there for for folks t- tomorrow. It's not an easy day for many of us. Nicole Redvers, I, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Masi Cho, thank you. 
regardless of where you grew up in this vast place we call home, chances are music offered you refuge at some point in your life, whether it opened up thoughts of distant places you hope to see or spoke right to the heart about what was happening in your life, to your family, to your friends, to you, to your community. And that was no different for my next guest, despite the fact that she was born and raised in, an, in a community of Salawit in way up in northern Quebec, right on the Hudson Strait, not far across the way, really, from Iqaluit in Nunavut. Elisipi uh, Isaac was surrounded by music from a really young age, listening to the kind of hits that will be familiar to most of us. Cindy Lauper, Blondie, as you just heard, Metallica, Zeppelin, Floyd, Leonard Cohen, you name it. And she started performing at age 12 with a local band. She would move to Montreal in the late 90s to study communications, even winning a bunch of awards for a 2003 documentary she made called If Weather Permits. But music continued to be her calling. And she wound up winning a Juno Award as a part of a band called Taima in 2005. 18 years later, she's still recording. Lots of success. She's now released her fourth album. It's called Inuktitut. And it is more than an album of cover songs, but it is an album of cover songs, but it's much more than that. Again, sung in Inuktitut, it is her way of paying tribute to the popular tracks of the past that are etched in her memory for reasons both joyous as songs can be and tragic and sad as songs can be as well. Songs that were formative to her childhood in Salawit. And Elaspi Isaac, simply known as Elaspi now, and her new album is called Inuktitut. She joins me now. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is tell me a bit about growing up in, in Salawit and, and what music meant to you because in your videos you include all these incredible images of home. And uh, you know, there's there's a lot of dancing and there's a, it looks like there's a lot of music going on too. You know, one thing that was good about the modern um modern things that would arrive to the north is the music is really I think that's where I always try to give the image of, you know, this was a place where we were able to finally let go of certain things that were harsh, you know, that was forced upon us, you know, to to being, you know, told we can't be nomads anymore. Send your kids to residential schools. Um, you know, we killed our dogs, our CMPs because of rabies. Um, so many things in such a short time were such... Uh, the feeling that we are not given the power to lead the way we've always led our lives um, was very, very hard on people. So I think when I think about my uncles who went to residential schools, who went through, you know, being forced to to try to, 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 to abandon their culture and their language, mm-hmm. um, one thing that was a good and positive experience was music, is having Led Zeppelin, having Neil Young. It's almost like these were their safe places where they can just for once not be forced anything, um, just be given beautiful sounds, melodies, and stories that they can relate to. So that's how my town was like many other Inuit towns, local radio, these songs were, you know, played on local radio. My uncles formed a rock and roll band. So I'm from a very musical family, not just traditional musical, but also very modern rock and roll folk uh, music family. So they've always, always took this as like a way to simply continue 
telling stories. Yeah. I didn't realize that uh, there had been a, quite a long tradition of popular songs like Four Strong Winds and Blowing in the Wind being translated into Inuktitut and, and sung. So that when you were growing up, a lot of these songs to you were were local songs in many ways. And the stories they told were local stories, even though other people may recognize them as having been sung by somebody else. <laughs> I thought they were Inuktitut songs. Wow. I had no idea they were um, uh, Ian Tyson, Neil Young, um, uh, Bob Dylan songs, actually. So it's just to see how I've been since a kid admiring, you know, my local uh, musicians. And a lot of them were were men you know and there weren't a lot of girls that were making and writing music um there is more now but uh yeah i think it's it plays a big role in the way i i viewed music um, i always felt like music should be a place where we are free to be what we want to be sometimes i would be told you know oh you, i like it when you sing your songs in inaptitude or uh i think it's it's nice that you're more traditional and i'm like i didn't grow up being told these things i was told do whatever you want in music just express yourself it could be in any language no nothing was scary for us because that's the way it was also for for my uncles of course they wrote songs in inuktitut they wrote inuktitut stories um but really, it's a place where, for once, we are free. So I think for me, this album, Inuktitut album, is very much a continuation of of this love we had for pop and modern music. Yeah. What uh, I, I had read that every single one of the songs that you chose, because of course, I'm sure there's you know a, a huge jukebox full of songs that you could have chosen. Every yeah. song that you chose had a story behind it, and you would share that story, and it was deeply deeply i mean these songs are familiar to many people and i suppose each of them tells a different story to the listener to the individual listener but for you these were deeply personal songs this is not about covering other people's work this is this is personal these are really because i think when a song hits you comes to you it becomes your song you know i think we all had have this experience with songs that move you so much like no other like no therapist like no friend like songs are so powerful music is so powerful and they can bring us to the past where we don't really necessarily want to go to so i think um it's the same thing it's not because we're inuit that we didn't have emotions towards blondie or or Led Zeppelin or Metallica, we all felt the same thing, probably the same thing. But in our story, I guess, through, you know, uh, the impact of colonization, the impact of so many harsh things uh, happening uh, through our culture, um, I think the way we viewed them, the way we hear them now, uh, the way they bring us back to the past is, I think, maybe a little bit more emotional maybe just because um we've been you know trying to numb the pains for so long and i think when we go back 
to the past through music like that. It's very, very powerful, I find. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was I was thinking about that looking through the set list as well. I have I have one Rockwell's Somebody's Watching Me. I don't remember that from 1984. I think I think I played it at my grandmother's house for the first time when I bought it. So mm. every time I hear it, I think of my grandmother. I think of her mm. house. I think of her the, that she's passed. And it's amazing yeah. you're right. What a flood of memories. Even just a tr- song could come back. Yeah. It can bring back for you. I was explaining earlier when my parents were sort of breaking up Born to be Alive was my favorite. It's one of my favorite songs. Uh, and, and you've covered Inunia of it, I think it's called, as Born to be Inunia Alive. Inunia yes. Yeah. Uh, tell me about selecting these, because the songs are quite eclectic. There's quite a mix of songs in there that you've chosen. Mm, it is very eclectic when you think about it. And that was also a little bit of a challenge with my producer, Joe Grass, who arranged the songs. We're not necessarily super pop, you know, oriented musicians now. Uh, back then, I, I loved th- these songs, but it's not necessarily something I'm necessarily naturally going towards to I tend to be a little bit more on the left hand. I was like, what are we going to do? We all have big, huge songs that were played on the radio, big hits, like, this is what moves me. This is what gets to me. This is what makes me cry because each song I chose tell a story really personal, either uh, my family story. Um, and I was like, how are we going to deal with this? Because we're, and then Joe was like, you know, that's what's beautiful is that your stories are so, it's about your healing journey. And these songs are so pop. I think the way we're going to combine it is totally going to work. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and it did, um some of the songs you picked are, are, are you must there must be a few in there that have real stories to tell i mean your version of time after time cindy lopper's version of the song is 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 fantastic it's a it's a really great song heart of glass is great i mean it's hard they're all very very good there must have been a few in there that really stood out to you that were really ones you wanted to do no matter what uh yes a lot of them were definitely uh very clear you know how i want to you know tell a story behind that and it had to be that because when you're doing cover songs you how are you gonna you know really be taken seriously first of all and not just like oh another cover album Mm -hmm. um i was like no i have to find a way to interpret in a way that is feeling like it's really personal. So, for instance, the Fleetwood Mac Dreams mm-hmm. uh, was like kind of my farewell to my uh, brother, cousin, uh, who was, um, I was only two and a half years old when he passed away. He died from a fire. So I think it marked something very, you know, important um, story in my family with my mother who was in, wasn't able to mourn really but Fleetwood Mac would always be a place um, where we would find comfort but yet maybe anger from her part she didn't really want to hear Fleetwood Mac because it right away brought back her young nephew you know young uh, late teenager early mm-hmm. adult uh, who passed away so for me Fleetwood Mac has always been Silasie, that's where I would go, and I have memories of of him that I thought were just was just a dream that was very recurrent. Uh, so it was, in a way, time to say goodbye in my own way. So dreams is very special. Um, going to California was also really special because they really influenced a lot of people, like my uncles, 
who played music in the north. Um, I think it's also important to to really go back there to the place where I loved, you know, the 60s, where I would have loved to be, you know, living, <laughs> but I was uh, born too late. Um, also, um, yeah, so let, I mean, Metallica, The Unforgiven was, again, really took me back close to how close I was to my cousins who loved Metallica, who I also loved. Uh, I think The Unforgiven is almost like an Inuk story of an Inuk hunter who's just trying to find his his place and trying to find his identity. And um, yeah. It's, it, was it difficult to, given that, was it difficult to write the lyrics for these songs in Inuk Tutut? Because I know, I know they're not, tr- they're not translations, they're interpretations, mm, right? They, they, they are translated mm. very word to word as mm. much as possible, because right. first of all, you have to know it was very complicated when you translate a song from its original English version to another language, mm-hmm. it, become, it becomes really hard in terms of um, paperwork, and we had to wait a whole year once right. the album was done, just to get the rights, of course, yes, to get yes. the rights. Uh, translating it um, once in a while, I would call Sarah Alaba, this woman who's a translator, um, just to make sure that everything was sounding good. So she definitely helped me. But I think what I realized is that when a song is so close to you, is in your heart, and you've heard you've heard it so many times as a young kid, you almost already hear it in Inuktitut. Oh. So when you choose the right song that is very meaningful, that is very close to you, it becomes so easy because it's already there, you know? It's almost like they were pre-translated in my head. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's good. And yeah. it must be, I mean, tomorrow's National Day of Truth and Reconciliation, you know, the loss of culture, the loss of language is talked about a lot. Mm-hmm. It must be gratifying to be able to put Inuktitut out there in a way that people that people around the world are going to listen to. I mean, I know just to, just to be able to sing in your language and have mm. people sit back and appreciate it and listen to it and hear the words and try to figure out how to pronounce them and all those things, just an, an admiration and appreciation for, mm. for, your, for your mother tongue. Well, it's funny because I try to think about that once in a while when somebody brings it up, but I can't seem to understand how it could be like in another house somewhere. I don't know. I'll just say Toronto mm, sure. or... Uh, Winnipeg or LA or Paris, uh, where these songs, you know, are, are available now. Um, it's just, I have a hard time trying to understand how it could sound like because it's so natural for me, um, or how people could uh, like, like it. Um, of course, I think the fact that these songs are very well known, it must help, but it's still strange for me to know that people are listening to it without understanding really but yeah that's that's special that's just to say how much i really made this for for my own pleasure for my my for us anyway for inuit but i'm just overwhelmed by how you know how much love it was it's been given um people are buying the album buying the vinyls i'm like wow that's that's amazing Elisafi, this out. Thank you so much. Uh, congratulations on on the album and, and and all that came before it and all that will come after it as well. I appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you. And go see the videos. Each almost each song has a video. Enjoy your fall uh, listening to these songs. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> 
Mr. Chair, there's no way that you can take almost a billion dollars out of the defense budget and not have an impact. So this is something that we're wrestling with now. I had a very difficult session this afternoon with uh, the uh, commanders of the various uh, services as we um, attempt to explain this to our people. Um, you know, our people see the, de the degrading, declining security situation around the world. And so trying to um, explain this to them is very difficult. Chief of Defence Staff of the Defence Staff, General Wayne Iyer, there uh, speaking to MPs on committee about what we've now learned is Ottawa asking the Department of National Defence to cut roughly $1 billion from its budget. That's right, $1 billion. This at a time when Canada's already under fire uh, for the, the military spending that's already in place and, as we've been told repeatedly, with a military that is both understaffed and under-equipped and needs help, right? So we've made promises to our allies that we'll spend more. Uh, we've already highlighted that the military needs more. In the meantime, here comes a billion-dollar budget cut. You'll remember perhaps back in June, the Prime Minister faced some pretty tough questions uh, after it was reported that he had told NATO allies that Canada would never meet the alliance's military spending target of 2% of GDP. We will continue to be uh, working on investing in, uh, in giving the support necessary to, uh, to the men and women of the Canadian Forces to deliver, whether it's in uh, Latvia, whether it's uh, in NATO operations around the world or UN operations. Canada continues to be uh, a partner that is much sought after. And that's Right. Uh, back in June. Well, here comes the billion dollar cut, right? Or at least the request for one. Uh, but today, of course, the defense minister, Bill Blair, the new one, uh, his spokesperson, Daniel Minden, said that, quote, any claim that Canada is cutting defense spending is not accurate because overall defense spending has increased and will continue to increase. So this is not a cut. Uh, of course, he says Canada's defense spending has increased year after year or year after year under this government. But is this a budget cut or not? Uh, well, if it looks like a budget cut and it walks like a budget cut and it quacks like a budget cut, then it may just be a budget cut, right? With more on this joining me now is Rob Hubert. He's an associate professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Calgary and a senior fellow at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute. The last we spoke actually was on that very issue back in June with that, uh, with that whole kerfuffle over NATO and what the prime minister may or may not have said. Rob, welcome back. No, thanks very much, Ben. It's my pleasure. Well, this sure seems like a budget cut. I don't know what else what, you, what else you could call it. It's a you know, if you ask a, a department to remove a billion dollars from their budget, isn't that a budget cut? It's a budget cut. I mean, you know, to hear hear the the current defense minister even try to spin that somehow it isn't. Um, you know, I mean, <laughs> I'm just as astonished as you that uh, of the level of uh, of uh, of deceit that's being put forward. Yeah, tell me about the deceit because we've been making a lot of promises. Uh, both to our own military and and the service service members, as well as to our allies, about ramping up our spending. There were certainly some promising looking things in recent budgets, but this would seem to fly in the face of it. Oh, it's totally. I mean, remember, there, there there's three major crises that the forces are facing, and they can't do it with budget cuts. I mean, first and for foremost, there is a, a crisis of, of personnel and the numbers, partly because of the ongoing financial situation D&D sees itself, partly because of the difficulties of recruiting during COVID. Um, but we don't have enough people coming into the pipeline to do what is necessary. We, it, I mean, it, it creates a bit of a death cycle for the forces because you don't have enough people then to get into the means of how you have to spend the money. So you can't spend the money, so you shrink even further. But even more dangerously, we are in a very dangerous environment. I mean, 
this government has says it gets it, it understands it. I mean, we were having that conversation back in June when, of course, the prime minister was saying, yes, we're not going to meet the overall, but we understand what we have to do and we're not going to let allies down. Well, you know, so much for that. And the third thing, of course, is that when Biden came up here, remember, there was so much from the government saying, oh, yes, yes, we understand what we have to do. There were there was the NORAD renewal that was promised and, and everything seemed to be hunky dory. How now do you go back since none of those programs really have the proper implementation? They were moving in the right direction, I might add. And now you're going to go to the department and say, oh, by the way, you got to cut a billion. So it's, you know, on all three counts, it's, 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 not only, it's not only a problem of dishonest governance, it's a danger to national security. Where exactly? I mean, I was trying to figure out exactly because there were some nuances here about where this money is meant to come from. So according, of course, to the government, uh, and which the irony of this, of course, is Anita Anand is now the Treasury Board president. And this is her. She would be the one asking for the cuts. And she was just the defense minister, of course, um, asking for the cuts. I don't think she's asking for the cuts personally, but this is clearly the mandate she's been given. Uh, the savings are meant to be found in consulting travel and similar non-defense critical expenses. Meanwhile, the overall budget for things like NORAD renewal, fighter jets, and so on is is going up. I mean, is, is that does that sound – where are they going to find a billion dollars in consulting travel? Well, maybe in consulting, but consulting travel and similar non-defense critical expenses. Well, you can't. I mean, that's the bottom right. line. I mean, it's it's nice to say, yes, we're you know, governments are so – I mean, not just this government, but all governments say we're going to cut the fat. And then every time you say, well, okay, can you give me the definition of what is fat and where you're cutting? What we're, we're going to cut the fat. Just trust us. It's the right thing to do. Um, you know, as soon as you're trying to say that you're literally going to get a billion dollars out of consultancy and a billion dollars out of travel, if you actually are spending that type of money, if you're spending a billion a year on that, there is something fundamentally wrong with how you oversee your governance. Um, you know, you, you, it's such a sign of incredible incompetence if you were to spend that. And they're not spending it. So, I mean, it's once again, sleight of hand. They're going to get the cut. And, and just on your point about Iran, I mean, part of the – there is speculation floating that she was moving programs through. She was actually following through on the NORAD renewal she was getting some of these programs that have been promised, the uh, over-the-horizon radar, the new mm-hmm. missile systems, the new munitions that are coming in. And, and, and there's a rumor, and I want to stress it's a rumor, but that she was doing it too well, and that's why she got moved to a portfolio that then requires her to take everything back. I mean, remember, there can only be one individual that is at the forefront of the governance under this system that we have. And and so it almost appears, and I want to stress peer. I don't want to yeah. you know deal with conspiracy theories, but you know logically, I suspect if we can ever get to the evidence, the if in fact it's shown that she was moving programs and then gets moved to cut them, I mean you draw your own conclusions and what it says of the current governance system. Yeah, I mean, there was certainly a lot of talk about about that move because she was just kind of settling in to her job at defense. She had done she had done a good job as far as people were concerned. She's very good at getting things done in a very difficult system uh, that is big government these days. And yet, she seemed to be incredibly competent. And next thing we know, she was gone. And no offense to Bill Blair, but he's no Anita. <laughs> Sorry, I, I said that out loud. Uh, but it's true. So, what impact will this? I mean, when you look at the stresses that the military are facing. Right right now. Um, 
where is this money then going to come from, do you think? Where are they going to start to find this? They can't find it in the things that they've singled out, like the consulting and the travel and other uh, non-defense critical uh, expenses. Where do they find it? Well, obviously, one of the things that all comes in is they'll reduce training. They'll cut corners wherever they can. You, you've covered the story about the lack of equipment of the forces over in the Baltics. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you've talked on your show about the fact that there is an issue in terms of whether or not they're even getting basics. And so there'll be even further cuts in that regard. You're going to see very, you know, they'll try to do it as quietly as possible and they'll try to keep it secret. But any of the any of the procurement programs that Iran had got going and, and that had been going beforehand will either be quietly put in a situation that they won't go forward or they'll be dragged out. In other words, all the date, uh, timelines that we've seen for the F-35s, they'll be pushed back. Um, obviously, there will be no decision under this government moving towards a replacement for the submarines. The question about the rebuilding of the frigates. So all the capital programs, let alone the other problem that no one talks about that we desperately need to address, is is refilling our um, stocks of munitions that we've given to the Ukrainians. Um, once again, very hard to get the documented proof on it, but there, there are some indications that, in fact, that we've left most of our stocks of munitions because of what we've given to the Ukrainians bare. And so I suspect what will happen in that case, you know, rationally, we should be replay, replacing and replenishment and expanding it. I suspect uh, the, they'll just simply be left empty. I, I guess we should point out, Rob, because we've talked about this before as well, the Conservatives cut military spending as well. <laughs> Governments, when they get into a jam uh, and, and are seen, think they're spending too much money, tend to start looking for efficiencies. There's that awful word again. And one of the places they will often look is to the military budget. Well, it's this mythology in Canada that uh, the defense budget is discretionary. I mean, part of that is, of course, reliant on the assumption that no matter how badly we screw it up in terms of how we're spending or not spending and what we're spending on, that the Americans, when push comes to shove, will be there for us. Of course, the problem is, is that it's pretty clear that even the Democratic um, administration is losing patience with us. And there were clear indications when Biden came up that it was to get Canada to actually start doing something on the defense side. One shudders to think, given the fact that if a, if we see a Trump re- renewal or a re-election, I should say, he's made yeah. it very clear that he's going to be, it's going to be a administration of revenge. And anybody that he thinks is slighting him or the United States is, is not going to get any sympathy. And so you start putting all this together and you go, oh my God, this is not discretionary, folks. Wake up. We're in a nasty environment. And they seem, the, the government seems oblivious to it. Yeah. I mean, you point that out as well. If, if, if there are changes in regime, not just in the U.S., but elsewhere as well, I mean, we could see allies uh, get grumpy pretty quick. Don't forget, of course, the Ukraine war, a, a war which I think, of course, is justified to be uh, to be financing the Ukrainians. But after a while, people are going to start questioning the amount of money being poured into that war if the military back at home is being depleted of, of much needed resources, right? I mean, these are obvious. I mean, it's, I don't think it's an either or equation, uh, but I think people are going to start to look at it perhaps as such. Well, part of the problem is, of course, is given the crises internally that have been created in Canada, be it housing, be it law and order, any of the issues that you look at the polls in terms of how Canadians are feeling secure internally, 
And that means that is going to be what the focus of Canadians will be on. And this is always misread by the politicians because they'll say, oh, so the top three issues are housing, security, uh, taxation, health care. That means these other issues, such as making sure that Canada is secure in the international system, isn't important. When, in fact, it's just simply, you know, let's face it, we look at our immediate needs, our immediate problems, and, and this also, I think, gives a false license to political elites, not just the liberals, which, as you pointed out, the conservatives did it too, is that, oh, well, we don't have to spend. When, in fact, you know, this is the time that a true statesperson comes forward, and we're just not seeing any indication of that whatsoever now. Yeah. Rob, what would you be looking out for? Because, of course, the opposition, you know, the opposition doesn't have, can spend as much money as they want, right? Because uh, they're not spending real money. What would you be looking for now from the Conservatives who do have a record? I mean, under Harper, there was not a great increase in military spending. I don't think they did a particularly great job. And I mean, if we're here now, part of it, again, is, 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 is the, um, is the fault, certainly the fault of the, of the government that's been in power for the last eight years. But there's been a long tradition of this. I mean, this military wasn't depleted and didn't end up in this condition overnight. Uh, or or in eight years, for that matter. What would you be looking for in terms of promises from the Conservatives? Because they're way ahead in the polls. What would you be looking for in terms of concrete promises from them to make this right? Well, the first thing is to say defense is not discretionary. We would love to spend it on other things. We would love to wish away the threat that the Russians and the Chinese and others pose to Canada, but that's not going to happen. So this is one of these, particularly if you're trying to show that you're understanding the international system. The other thing, of course, is you got to reassure your allies because, I mean, look, we've had a series of incredible dis- disconnect from friends and allies just in the last two weeks. Yes. I mean, the the you know it was a, it was a propaganda coup for the uh, for the Moscow regime when the government did not properly vet that uh, the the Nazi that appeared in, in the not, or not Nazi but the member of the Waffen SS that mm-hmm. appears in Parliament and and obviously. The choice of the government to go so public in our uh, with the issue about accusing the Indian government of the um, of the murder of a of a uh, on Canadian soil of the uh, of that individual and so you know you look around and say okay so forget about having any form of talks with India uh, that's simply not going to happen we're never you know China remains in, in, entrenched on interfering in Canadian in, um, uh, in political system. Uh, the Europeans are going to look at us and say, whoa, what did you, why did you just hand such a propaganda coup to the Russians when we're trying to keep our, our solidarity together? And the Americans are going to look at the, the, the fact that it's a cut. I mean, you just, you know, like I said, you don't save on travel and, cons- uh, and uh, consultation for a billion bucks. Yeah. The Americans yeah, are going exactly. to look at it and say, you're not, you're, you're a free rider. And so the Conservatives should be saying, we need to reassure yeah, you don't you don't pay your tab, and you're annoying us. Uh, Rob, thank you so much. It's always my pleasure, Ben. There's a new show premiering tomorrow night on Global. It's part of the Crime Beat family. You've been watching Crime Beat, uh, that great true crime uh, series. It's called a Crime Beat Most Wanted. Have a listen. After an execution-style shooting in an upscale Vancouver restaurant, customers flee for their lives. A brazen killing on a busy cafe patio in the middle of a Euro Cup soccer match in Toronto's Little Italy. 
The driver of the gray car was hit. The offender in the red truck took off at high speeds. The red truck sped through the intersection. I'm angry at the guy. I definitely want to see justice. Right. So that's a series called A a Crime Beat Most Wanted. It begins uh, tomorrow night on Global. And the premise is that it tracks some of Canada's most wanted criminals and digs into the crimes themselves, the victims, the scars they've left on the families and the communities. And with the suspects all still at large, the series also calls on us, the viewer, to provide any information that we could have, a plea to the public, really, to help police capture them and deliver justice to the families of their alleged victims. Uh, Global reporter and anchor Tracy Tong is the host of Crime beat most wanted and she joins me now tracy thank you congratulations thanks for having me ben and well, we're really excited to share what we've been doing for the yeah past congratulations what a great idea to build off the uh, off the crime beat name with something different and something uh, all its own absolutely yeah we know that crime beat has seen great success on global um and this is a spin-off series that is a little bit different the episodes are shorter and it's more fast-paced but it looks into something that's really important and and timely right now because all of the people that we're talking about, the individuals who are on that most wanted list, uh, are still out there. So really, this show is raising awareness about, um, you know, really pressing issues and is hoping to get the public involved. Yeah, that's a, the really interesting aspect of it because you're taking these cases that the public may know, may have forgotten about. How did you go about selecting which cases you wanted to uh, to tackle? Because there are a lot of stories out there across this country. There are, and unfortunately, Ben, there are tons of um, tragic violence um, crimes that have been committed in this country. So uh, the list itself, uh, there's a program called BOLO, and that stands for Be on the Lookout. Mm -hmm. Um, And that um, selects a number of most wanted individuals. Every year they come out with this list of their top 25 most wanted individuals. How they come about selecting those individuals as they uh, coordinate with police services across the country. The crimes that they are talking about are some that have the biggest impact on the community. We're talking about um, shootings done in very public places, um, violent crimes that are committed where there could be innocent people involved, and just some of the most brazen you know, incidents that have happened over the last while. And of course, the, the major factor here being that the suspects at large has still not been caught. And now they have exhausted avenues and they really want the public or perhaps people who may know where these people are to step forward. Which which is a great idea because so often there are stones left unturned out there. Somebody knows something, right? And then jogging the memory and bringing people back. How? Do, what's the approach? Because obviously you've, you talk with police, I'm sure, and investigators, but you also talk to those who are impacted by these crimes as well about their need for justice. Yeah, absolutely. You know, in a lot of these cases, a murder has been committed and that life has ended, right? But we need to remember about all of the lives that are forever changed from that act, there could be a widow, children who are now left without a father, friends who who are missing that loved one and family. Um, And then there are the detectives who now dedicate all of their time and effort into trying to find this person who is responsible. There's, There's a community that's been left shaken and traumatized by what's happened. You know, so many lives are now left forever changed from those acts. 
these stories that we're telling, we do intimate interviews by the people who, uh, with the people who, who have been impacted. Um, but we also talk to the detectives about what they know so far with the goal of engaging the public, but also perhaps getting to certain people who may have information that they A, didn't think was important to share with investigators or B, decided not to because there is a risk involved in that as well, right? So, you know, the the cases that we're sharing here, I think investigators are hoping that it'll jog some memories, but it will also get to the hearts of those who may know something to say something. Right, I I guess because so often, this kind of viewing could be passive, but in your case, it is anything but passive. Yeah, and, and I'll give you an example. You know, we do um, a season of eight episodes and they go through the stories of some of the the crimes that are committed by the, the top most wanted people on this list. Um, the very first episode is about uh, an indoor soccer game that was shot up about a year ago. And this happened in, in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Three people were shot that night. Um, there were, It started with an altercation on the court. And according to investigators, a spectator uh, got involved and, and produced a gun and fired multiple rounds at, at the court. Uh, three people were hit by the bullets and it was the referee that ended up dying from a single gunshot to the abdomen. The um, story behind his life is really just, you know, nothing short of heartbreaking and just incredible. He was a um, soccer referee that came from Colombia just a couple of years before. Um, and his his now widow um, was his childhood sweetheart back in Colombia. And they oh, met wow. when they were just kids. You know, they, they dated, he was her date at her quinceanera when she turned 15. Right. Um, when a girl becomes a woman, they've mm-hmm. got beautiful photos to share from that time. Um, and uh, a couple of years later, they, they parted ways and went their separate ways to go to post-secondary school didn't talk for the longest time. They got married to other people, uh, had their own children, divorced. And then 18 years later, they reconnected on Facebook. And um, they started talking, they rekindled their love, got married. And now they have, you know, a blended family. He moved from Colombia to Canada in 2020. And it was just two years after that. And think about this woman who has waited her entire life now to be with the man that she was in love with during her teenage years. They're they're now finally married. And he is refing an indoor soccer game and is killed by a spectator in the stands. And he was not targeted. Investigators do not believe that one bit. So the impact here on the family, on the children, is, is very real. And they live that nightmare every single day. They're hoping every single day that a tip will come in and that person who is out there will be caught. The man who is wanted in this case is a 19-year-old named Christian Cuxham. And in our investigation, in our research, we have actually found out that he was quite involved in the Toronto futsal or indoor soccer community in his younger years. And... Um, you know, there, there's a whole story behind that. Where he is now, investigators surely don't know, but somebody does. At that age, you know, it's it's really believed that it's it's not possible for him to just disappear off the face of the earth. He may have not been using his phone or cards, but he must be 
leaving some sort of trail somewhere and someone's got to be helping him, right? And that's the whole idea behind this is you hear the story of the family that is just left devastated, you know, now broken in pieces, their lives are ruined. The 19 year old gets to walk free. That's not fair, right? Life and death are not fair. But in a lot of cases, the only thing that people can do is to seek justice. That's what they're trying to get here. Well, Trace, I'm looking forward to seeing episode one. I know there are seven more to come after that. Uh, congratulations. The show is called Crime Beat Most Wanted. It premieres on Global on Saturday. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ben. As we started off the show this evening, we talked about the record wildfire season in Canada. Just, you know, 17.5 million hectares have burned, 175,000 square kilometers. That's a 650% increase this year over our 10-year average for wildfires. You know, tens of thousands of people have been forced to flee. Firefighters have been killed in the line of fire, so to speak. Uh, Global News' current affairs show the new reality returns for another season. It begins on the front lines of that wildfire fight. You can see that Saturday at 7 with rare access to crews in BC who are fighting a fire near Kamloops this summer. And it not only explores the challenges of that fight, but also the broader questions of how we need to better manage fire risk in the future. Joining me now is New Reality Story producer, Chrissy Collier. Uh, Chrissy, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. Well, this has been such a big story. We've talked about it all summer, of course, and it's right across the country. There are so many facets to it. Uh, how did you decide to tackle it? I mean, I think we had no option but to, um, mm. as you are well well aware of, you know, we're now at over 18 million hectares burnt nationwide. Um, the smoke advisories that's hit almost every province and every Canadian, I think we really had to do a deep dive into what is going on for firefighters on uh, the front lines, but also solution. And and so you begin by going to the front lines, and that's always an incredible thing to see. But you had some great access. Where where did you go and what did you find? So our correspondent, Neetu Garcha, had the opportunity to go on the control line with the BC Wildfire Service um, at the Rossmore Lake Wildfire, uh, which is just south of Kamloops, back at the end of July, beginning of August. And they essentially were putting well they're we're trying to put out the flames and mm -hmm. one of in the method in which that they do that is a planned ignitions um which is deliberately setting fires to stop fires um and so she really got great access to to the crews um mexican crews that came up to help u.s crews from california that came up to help you know the access was incredible yeah. And as you mentioned, I mean, this was we often think of wildland firefighters as being local and they often they most often are from the province mm -hmm. itself or from the municipality, but from right across the country and right around the world this year. The last numbers we checked, there was, um, you know, more than 4300 firefighters that joined us um, from across the world wow. uh, to come fight. Um, just as I mentioned earlier at the Rossmore Lake Wildfire, which we were exposed to were the Mexican contingent and the U.S. crews. Um, and it was very interesting to see different techniques brought from different countries. Um, one of which was, you know, the Mexican contingent, they use machetes to remove branches oh. uh, so that the fire doesn't go up into the treetops. Um, and so, you know, there was a lot of knowledge sharing amongst all the different uh, countries. It, it was really quite remarkable. 
Yeah, and and you also not just you don't just look at the fight, which is obviously a really important part of all this, but perhaps most importantly is mitigating those risks. And you mm-hmm. look at solutions as well, because I think that's the question that's on everyone's minds now after the kind of summer and fall spring that we've had is what do we do to make sure that we're better, not perhaps better prepared, but this is we got we need to find ways to better mitigate this going forward. Absolutely. I mean, we spoke to a several different uh, fire experts, uh, one of which is Robert Gray, who is a fire ecologist. He's been working in this field for more than 40 years. He he said we need to do a lot more prescribed burning, which is essentially burning all the excess debris on the ground, the organic material. It basically is essentially as fuel uh, for fires. And, and he pointed to the United States. They do massive numbers of burning every year and they're still in deficits um and they you know his solution is to really start doing a lot more here in canada um because that's one way in which we can create natural barriers on the land not only does that allow um you know fire suppression resources like firefighters to get control of the fire or for weather to change to make it easier to put it out. Um, and also another area that we really need to look at and and really it just should be, happen is a lot of cultural burnings, indigenous uh, cultural burnings, um, indigenous people have historically done this practice um, and we should we, you know, because of colonial and historical laws and policies, they haven't been able to do it on their traditional territories. And there's been a lot of calls for those barriers to be removed because we need everyone to be tackling this problem. Yeah. I mean, we know that Indigenous communities, whether it be in northern Quebec, where those huge fires were burning this mm-hmm. summer, or whether it be in Alberta, BC, uh, certainly in the Northwest Territories, that Indigenous communities were were disproportionately impacted by the fires this summer. And that a lot of traditional knowledge about just fires themselves, uh, you're right, has been perhaps put to the side for a very long time. And that mm-hmm. would need that would need to change. We need all hands on deck for this one, right? And and all knowledge is good knowledge, uh, especially those who've uh, seen and, and and tackled this for so long. And they're disput- and indigenous communities are disproportionately impacted by wildfires. Uh, we spoke with one fire scientist um, who is on secondment with Parks Canada as an indigenous fire specialist. Her name is Amy Cardinal Christensen, and she has done massive research into this area. And one of the studies that she was looking at between one of the studies, sorry, that she conducted from 1980 to 2021, basically found that several communities multiple times were evacuated from their homes because of wildfires, sometimes up to seven times within that period. It really reduced the risk to those communities if they're able to do their cultural indigenous practices. Right. And I guess as you walked away from from that, I, I invite obviously invite viewers to watch the whole thing. Uh, but I mean, what a, what a summer it's been. Did you walk mm-hmm. away with with any sense that that we're moving in the right direction here, that somehow this was the summer that was the real wake up? I mean, there've been other huge wildfire mm-hmm. summers. We think of Fort McMurray and there's been others. Uh, but it feels like this summer was the real wake up call. Absolutely. I think there's a lot of Canadians. I'm based in Ontario. I think a lot of Ontarians didn't really see it as maybe their problem just because it's always been sort of out west um and i think this was a real wake-up call for a lot of canadians because of all the smoke advisories um just you know 
seeing the maps where every part of pretty much all the country, there's red flames saying, oh, there's a fire here. There's a fire there. There's a fire every which way. So um, I think there's a lot of momentum right now um, to make real lasting change. I think we really need to tackle this problem. And I think more than ever, people are opening their eyes to we need to find real fire mitigation solutions. Well, Chris, I look forward to watching it uh, and everyone else can as well. Saturday 7 on Global, the new reality is back with the frontline firefight and strategies on how to mitigate fire risks in the future. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. You know, tomorrow is National Truth and Reconciliation Day. And we've been talking about, uh, we've been doing some stories on that tonight, especially uh, with Alessipi earlier. And then we spoke uh, to Dr. Nicole Redvers about the wildfire situation and how it impacts Indigenous communities. Uh, there is a new documentary that will premiere on the History Channel tomorrow night called True Story Part 2. Have a listen to the trailer. If there's one thing we learned from beginning to explore the true history of the relationship between Indigenous people and settlers in Canada... It's that you can't have reconciliation without facing the truth. In part one of our story, we went back, way back, from the first people's stories of creation to a time when the relationship between Indigenous people and settlers in the land that is now called Canada was born. But soon, diverse Indigenous nations that had been thriving since time immemorial would be altered forever. This isn't a blame game or a shame game, but for the last 150 years or so, there's been a lot to talk about. This is True Story. There you have it. You can't have reconciliation without first understanding truth. That's really the foundation of the documentary. It's set to premiere on the History Channel uh, tomorrow night, Saturday night, the 30th. True Story Part 2, the trailer you just heard. As the title makes clear, there was a Part 1 further back in time. Part 2 continues that journey through history, through the eyes and words of more than a dozen First Nation uh, knowledge keepers, guests, uh, Métis, Inuit voices, First Nation voices. And again, it premieres tomorrow night in honour of National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. Uh, over two hours, it takes the you were right through parts of Indigenous history and experience that you may be familiar with it, some of it less so. It moves along at a pretty brisk pace, but has a lot of good uh, tender moments in it as well. As director Danae Robinson puts it, in order for true reconciliation to take place, we must acknowledge and learn from our shared past, no matter how ugly it may be, or in this case, how ugly or how interesting as well, because there's a lot of things in this doc that are that may be new. I learned stuff watching it. Uh, not that I know everything, but it was, it was a really interesting watch just because you pick up on a lot of little things that are brought up uh, that you may not know or may have forgot. Danae Robinson is, as well as co-writer, is the director and co-writer and co-writer and co-executive producer Rebecca Gibson. Join me now with more on True Story Part 2. Uh, to you both, thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. Danae, I mean, one of the things... You pack a lot into two hours. I mean, you pack a lot of history, a lot of little moments, a lot of things that people may not know about. But I guess the focus statement here, and I think it comes, it's in the title and it comes out right near the beginning, is, uh, you know, you can't have reconciliation without truth. And and this is an idea, an attempt to try to bring that truth to the table. Yeah, um, absolutely. Um so true story is unique in the sense that this is the first time that Indigenous people are telling our own stories of, uh, you know, history, uh, events, personal stories, um, and our perspectives on the history of relationships between settlers and Indigenous peoples in Canada. Usually it is told from a settler's perspective and um, 
you and our you know experiences go um unspoken about or unacknowledged usually or misrepresented so true story is unique in the sense that this is the first time it broadcasts on the history channel told by indigenous people and made by indigenous people yeah, some of the people you found, I should point out, there are a series of guests, a series of, of people who feature in this, including names you will know well, Phil Fontaine, for instance, others you may not know as well. But each and each of them has this incredible story to tell. And there are just little moments in it. There's one uh, former RCMP officer who has uh, a personal story, I think, about his father uh, being taken away and brought to a residential school. I mean, there are just these little moments in each one. And it, and it says so much about, you know, the complexities of this, both personally and culturally and, and nationally oh yeah um each one of our our knowledge keepers does have a personal connection to what they are speaking to like uh for an example jay soul he's a 60 scoop survivor he was mm. taken from his mother when in 1981 um even our narrator dio horn she was at the oka crisis with her right. older sister um, even myself, uh, I'm a granddaughter of a residential school survivor. So I'm an intergenerational survivor. And um, I've lived firsthand all of, you know, the fallout of what residential schools do has done to families and continues to do so. And um, even our actors that have were in the film um, related a lot to the materials that we were, um, that they were, um, you know, acting out but right. really they all had personal connections to what was being shared yeah i should mention to listen there are little vignettes as well i mean it is it is really there is so much to learn in this uh, rebecca this again it's it's hard to pack in so much history in with such in such a concise manner uh, picking out little moments how did you go about deciding what you would focus on what what some of those little moments that you'd bring up i mean there's a whole section of, about uh, the american indian movement and buffy st marie and how it crossed into how it came to canada as well uh you know there's things about the indian white paper and, and, and pierre trudeau and jean Chrétien, and there's also lots of history that people may recognize as well plus there's metis first nations inuit there's there's just a lot of history packed in here and yet it all flows in a very cohesive way when um chorus approached us to do this project for History Channel, they approached Lisa Meaches, who is my business partner. She's Anishinaabe from Long Plain First Nation and Ebb and Flow First Nation and Sandy Bay First Nation. And she brought the idea to Danae. And Danae said, we can't do this in just one feature length film. Mm -hmm. We need more time. So initially, the idea was that we would do history from creation stories through the implementation of the Indian Act. And then that part two would take place from the Indian Act to present day. And when Danae embarked on this journey, we didn't know that we were going to do part two. That was just the hope. And so Danae really guided what pieces were key to tell. And also we included many of our knowledge keepers in the development process to make mm -hmm. sure we were getting representation from across the country, from coast to coast to coast, many different nations. And then in part two, we were able to include even more voices right through the development process. So Danae was the visionary who led the process and we had a lot of great support from many people from many different nations. Yeah, today, one thing that really struck me in watching it was that 
I mean, you, you tell a story that I think more and more Canadians generally are familiar with, the idea, the residential schools, the destruction of culture, genocide, as as the word is, is often used in this documentary. But one of the things that, that comes out is the broken promises is one of the things that really stands out here. I think there's a lot of misconceptions around what was promised and those promises that were unfulfilled. And I thought that was a really interesting part of this of this documentary as well as just how much you focus on the broken promises. I think, like, as you said, I think a lot of misconceptions come from what are treaties, first and foremost, a lot of people hear them, and they think it only pertains to Indigenous people. But um, really, they're the basis of Canada. And what was negotiated in in these treaties and these rights that in um, that Indigenous people said, yes, you can stay here. But this is what we're asking for. And a lot of them have gotten on unacknowledged and um you know jay soul speaks to stolen land and exactly what does that mean because i think as he says a lot of people hear that phrase and it either angers them because it frightens them because they're not they don't know exactly what it means and i think he um expresses beautifully what it means and that is land that was entitled to indigenous people and it was just never followed through Looking ahead here, because there is a lot of talk about about the present day. I mean, it, there, it is very much in some ways, I, I didn't want to call it a history lesson because it's not. It's not a lesson. It's sort of something, it makes it much more uh, digestible than that in the way that it's told. Uh, but it, it is very much about the present as well. So I imagine, uh, Rebecca, when you were sitting down to put this together, that you thought a lot about how these different uh, stories about the past would resonate now. That's so true. And as Denny mentioned, we heard that from our crew. We heard that from the people that we were interviewing. We heard that from our cast members, that it was resonating. Even the fact that this tor- these stories are being told in this way, it it has an impact on people to know that the history is being heard. Yeah. Uh, Denny, when, when you approached the mod, the, you know, putting it in a present context, because even the conversation around truth and reconciliation continues to change, and it changes quite quickly as well. Uh, But there are some threads that go back to the beginning here. There's the idea of environmental stewardship. There's the the idea of language. There's the idea of culture. There's a lot of things that continue through, even though the 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 day the year to year conversation may may focus on certain events and certain things. But there's a thread there that you that you've drawn as well from the past to today. I think it includes includes acknowledgement that indigenous people are diverse. Um, we did have. We, we did and do have thriving communities. Um, we were living here for thousands of years with our own trade system, commerce. We had scientists, we had doctors. We were thriving before contact. And I think that doesn't get acknowledged a lot of the time. So I think reconciliation starts with acknowledging with the disruption of that history of this knowledge that was here before. It was interesting because you do put this question to each of your knowledge keepers uh, near the end about what reconciliation means for them. And it was and you mentioned the diversity because the opinion that the answers you got were all quite different. They were all quite different, equally, equally interesting and equally personal, but they were all quite different. Mm-hmm. And and I and I think that's true, too. Uh, reconciliation comes from each person individually and it will look very different to everybody. Um but I think the most common word or 
phrase that comes to mind is action. And, um, and I think there, there needs to be change and whether that's through education or just listening, um, then I think reconciliation is happening and it's not going to happen very fast. It's going to take a long time. One of the things I love about that question is that we ask it of the people watching, everybody watching, because reconciliation comes from all of us living in Canada together. Uh, yeah, I guess that, that was going to be my, um, you beat me to my last question, which is <laughs> when, when viewers watch this, what would you, I mean, you have some, there's some trivia in there. I mean, trivia, there's, you know, there's a quiz at times, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of, it's a thought provoking exercise watching true story part two and that is not always the case uh, and and i congratulate you on that i i, I want to know i was hoping to know what you hope your viewers take away from it a lot of the feedback that we got from part one was as you said in the beginning was that they learned something that they didn't know or that they were just never taught and and i really believe that with part two people are going to walk away with the same you know, takeaway by learning something, even if it's just one thing, um, I'm, I'm happy. And I think we did our job. And I think, you know, because it's on TRC day, and mm -hmm. a lot of people know, TRC day is a thing, orange shirt day is a thing, but they don't know how they can do something to honor that day. And watching a project like this, and there's so much content available tomorrow, but watching true story part two tomorrow, and then part one that leads up to it on the History Channel tomorrow evening. It's something that you can actively do to promote reconciliation and to promote learning the truth. Yeah. And it also, I found that in watching it, there was so many, so much to take away from it, regardless of where you, what your personal story is here, where you grew up, who your parents are, how long your family's been here. I mean, there was a lot for anyone to take away, regardless of, of what their relationship with this country is. I love that there's so many triumphant stories. That's something that Danae really wanted to weave through the storytelling is those moments of triumph. And triumph doesn't come without a cost. And it's interesting to see how there are so many beautiful stories of people who triumphed having overcome some of the impacts of colonization. And it's a beautiful thing to see how Danae's done that with light in the darkness and with a sense of humor also. Mm-hmm. Well, today and Rebecca, congratulations um, on this, on part one and part two. And uh, thank you so much for, for sharing some time with me tonight. Thanks for having thank us. Thank you ben. for having us.